The uh, scripture reading today is from Acts 27, verse 27 through the end of the chapter. And that's on page uh, 936 of the Pew Bibles. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread. And giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were, all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, and the same, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow st- stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. The word of the Lord. Join me now in a prayer of thanksgiving. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Uh, Thank you for who you are. You are good. You are slow to anger. You are great in power. You're abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You are simultaneously just and merciful. Thank you for what you have done, the way you have loved the church, this body, these people, the way you have led us through the wilderness, have calmed the storms in our lives the way you've provided for us because you know what we need. We have no reason to be worry or to to, to worry or be anxious. Thank you for Jesus, your ultimate provision of what we need. He is the living water. He is the bread of life. We thank you, Lord, for what you will do, for the Holy Spirit who you've given, who guides us and 
um, helps us, who opens our eyes to see and our ears to hear, who softens our hearts. And even now, we thank you for that that you have done, that you have prepared us for this message from your word that you will um, give, that you prepared us to receive it, that it will take root, that it will produce fruit, and that it will bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how often is it that when our faith is assured and strengthened one day, one evening, one time in the Word, one encouraging conversation with a fellow brother or sister in the Lord, one particular sermon that you hear that gets you through the remainder of that day, that gets you through that difficult night, and the next morning you wake up and you're wondering what happened to that conversation. What happened? Where did that sermon go? Why is it that a faith that was so strong seemingly a few hours, a few days before, is now is now weaker. Or, or the faith that you had that there would be a brighter day the next day, and, and there's no brighter day the next day. In fact, it's, it's maybe darker. It's interesting, even as we consider our passage this morning, we have Paul, as we looked at last week, faith in God, God granting him the grace to trust him, that there would be no loss of life but the ship in the middle of a storm-tossed sea. Our text this morning opens two weeks into this storm where they have not had the opportunity to see stars or the moon be guided. They're lost. There's no hope. It's sort of, if you will, the, the next episode that you have to wait a week for. And it opens with this montage of, and we left our characters at, and... Will they get out of this particular situation? Now, growing up, I, uh, it's, it's amazing to, what comes back to your mind when you're studying Scripture. And some of the books that were read growing up come back to mind. So here's one particular one. You may not have read this one. And if you haven't, get it and read it to your children. Maybe it will be in a sermon one day. Here's the title. Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Yes, okay, I have some fellow readers. Yeah, and if you don't know, Alexander is a little boy and he wakes up and the day begins bad and it gets worse. He has bubble gum stuck in his hair due to falling asleep chewing gum. Getting out of bed, he trips on his skateboard. He drops his sweater in the sink. He could tell that it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At breakfast, his brothers find prizes in their cereal boxes, but not for Alexander. At breakfast, Alexander resolves that he's going to move away to Australia. On the way to school, he has to sit in the middle seat. At school, his drawing example is disqualified as the teacher didn't appreciate the blank sheet of paper entitled Invisible Castle. At recess, Alexander is demoted from best friend status to third friend status. At lunch, all his friends have dessert and their lunch boxes, but not Alexander. And then the running line throughout the whole book is Alexander, due to his terrible, no good, horrible, very bad day, deciding that surely Australia is a better place to live. And ironically enough, this book was published in Australia, and they changed it to, sure enough, Timbuktu 
has got to be a better place than Australia. What's the point here? Well, the point is that the promises of God rarely come with a timetable. The point is, is that Israel in the Bible wants to go back to Egypt. We want to go back to another day. We want to go back to another place. We want to go somewhere else other than where God has us now because surely it's better there and not here. This is true. It's true for all of our lives. The life of faith centers on the all-knowing God who ordains all things for His glory. The recognition that the difficulty of today isn't necessarily resolved by a move back to Egypt, to Australia, or sinful habits. This is the, the place for, for some of us, maybe for you today, maybe this past week, maybe this coming week, we will be tempted to think, this place, God has me here now, could be resolved by a foray back into previous sin. It's more pleasurable. It's easier. It's a load off the mind. The life of faith says no. God knows what is best. His promises are good. He promises to care for us. He promises to help us. And I'll wait on him. Now let's look at our text. This is the situation that Paul and his companions find themselves in is a difficult one, much like maybe our week or month or year. 2020 has been a doozy. The 14th night had come as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight. The sailors suspected that they were nearing land. Let's just pause and consider the fact that Luke is narrating this story for us, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But this is a 28-day at minimum journey. The journey isn't over when it, the ship gets wrecked onto the island of Malta. And we have a very small, in light of the length of this story, account. Uh, you probably have been in a difficult situation or a, a, a unique story and you go back to recall it and you could say, well, I could spend hours telling you every minute detail that are clear in my mind. This is not an easy situation these men are in. Fourteen days now have gone by. They've not eaten. Uh, this, this, the, the, the 276 people, uh, the fiercest, strongest sailor, undoubtedly sick and nauseous. Uh, the moaning of this ship, the relentless pounding of waves and rain and wind, uh, the screeching of people, of men, as maybe they get injured as they slide across the deck, uh, the moaning in the hull of this ship. Uh, this is not an easy place to be. And yet Paul has offered to them faith and the sailors at midnight, 14th night in, suspect that they're nearing land. So they take a sounding and found 20 fathoms. That is, they took a, a line or a rope or a piece of string attached a heavy weight to it and dropped it. And when the line goes slack, they mark that spot, pull it up quickly, measure that out. And they find that they are in 20 fathoms of water, otherwise known as 120 feet. A bit later, they do it again and find that, sure enough, they are nearing land. They're now into 90 feet of water. 
And so they, they drop down four anchors off the back side of the ship. Let's slow this down. And notice what takes place. Verse 30. As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying anchors from the bow, the sailors are done. There's some sort of mutiny going on. There's this whispering of, let's go drop some anchors. And somehow, we're not told, Paul is privy to what is taking place. They lowered this ship's boat. This is the rowboat. This is their lifeboat. This is their access to land. This is their ability to get someplace safely without being killed. Now, just, just picture it, right? Storm-tossed sea, boats being lowered down, sailors on this boat or lowering this thing down. We know there's no sailor's law, so probably not in this boat, at least lowering this ship's boat, getting ready to, to rappel down onto it. Paul is on this storm-tossed boat and he looks over at the centurion and says unless these men stay in the ship you cannot be saved and you hear this this sword coming out and these guy and there goes the ship's boat can you imagine the animosity that's taking place can you imagine the the yelling that's taking place Uh, this power struggle of Sailors that know the sea and this centurion that's guarding Paul. The sailors obviously not believing that Paul knows what he's talking about or seeking to go his route. And the centurion now listening to Paul. And they let this thing go. The dynamics, as I even mentioned last week, of ships, sailors, and soldiers, and centurions, and prisoners, all on this ship and how they work together is remarkable. The Lord's ways are not the easiest ways. Most often the Lord's ways are not the easiest ways. Why not lower the lifeboat? Why not take what is clearly in front of us? A brother, even after last week's sermon, uh, made the remark that I think is true in Scripture, which is oftentimes we look for the easiest way forward as confirmation of God's leading us. And yet, if we look at this passage, it seems very clear that it should be the other way around. What's the most difficult way forward? Let's examine that as a potential passage for how God might be leading. With the door has closed, let's look for the open window. Why not try going through the hard door? It, it's rare in Scripture, that God is not leading through difficult times to the 11th hour, 59th minute, 59th second. The way to salvation is by Christ. That is illustrated in Scripture as the narrow way of which few there be that find it. But following along the way is also a narrow path wrought with difficulty. God often directs the paths of our lives through the dark valleys in dark storms. Open your Bible at some point and and find large chunks of Scripture where you see God's people frolicking in the fields and picking daisies and 
doing twirls or whatever else. You, you won't find that. And the rare verse that you find where you could imagine that taking place, you get no commentary on it of what it was like to, to be in a land flowing with milk and honey. You know, you never see them going, ah, oh, we're just drinking milk and honey. You never get that. First latte. No, it doesn't happen. Those are few and far between. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit inspired the writing of his word to focus on the difficult times, often due to the sin of God's people and the faithfulness of God in those times of sin to redeem and hold his people as he promised. Or to put it another way, the times of ease in scripture seemed to be the times when the people of God forgot he was their provider and sustainer and the times of difficulty is where they remembered seemingly constantly that their only hope is in him. And we want to run so quickly from the difficult times. I'll admit it, I, I, don't, I don't want life to be any more difficult than it already is. Who wants that? The Christian life is in one sense a test of how much we think the world should revolve around us and our desires and needs and whether or not we believe it revolves around God and his glory. The hymn, in shady green pastures so rich and so sweet God leads his dear children along. Where the water's cool flow bathes the weary one's feet God leads his dear children along. But what is the refrain of that song repeated many times? Some through the waters, some through the floods, some through the fire, but all through the blood. Some through great sorrow, but God gives a song in the night season and all the day long. If you're taking notes, you might just note that first portion of Acts 27, which is verse 27 through 32 as test number one. I'm entitled the sermon, A Storm tested faith there's test number one this lifeboat soldiers and centurions test number two you can find in verse 33 through 38 it's about to dawn the ship's boat is gone and Paul urges them to take food now I don't know about you well I know about you and that is we don't do too well missing one or two meals, much less 14 days of meals. These men are ravished. There's been no time to eat, only time to stay alive. We can imagine what time they did have to eat. You're so nauseous you have no desire to. Today's the 14th day, Paul says, that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Just think what Paul is doing. He's in the hole. Imagine this. Maybe he's in the hole. Maybe he's on deck. I don't know. But consider it. He's in the hole. The storm has not ceased. The creaking has not stopped. The shrieking has not ended. And Paul's in there yelling, Guys, let's eat. When he given thanks, he took bread, broke it, and began to eat. And something takes place. A peace comes over this group. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. 276 persons in the ship. 
And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. This is test number two. These are simple acts of faith that Paul is doing. There's nothing profound here. In times of great difficulty, in times of great pressure, Christian, you should just do the simple acts of faith that are right before you. We want to know how far to jump, where to go, what decision to make. And it could just be we need to, and I mean this sincerely, go to sleep. Because you're not going to solve what God wants you to do at 11.30 or midnight or 2 a.m. Or you literally sit down with your family in the middle of a stressful day and you pause and you give thanks and you have a meal with them. And you stay longer than you want to stay. Simple acts of faith. The simple steps of right action are steps made in faith. Paul is just simply eating and giving thanks. The proverbial, if you will, stopping and smelling the roses. Luther said it well. I've got so much to do today, I'm going to spend the first three hours in prayer. Simple acts of faith. People of faith make decisions by faith of the simplest of nature and we move forward in faith that our loving Heavenly Father will guide in accordance to His will. And so you're going to get up tomorrow morning and we should open our Bible and we should eat a good meal and we should pray and we trust God to lead us. The key to a dynamic Christian life is an awareness of God's majestic holiness and unearthly power. Those two truths shift how we deal with sin, shift how we deal with difficulty, shift how we deal with the church, shift how we view the wonder of the Bible and prayer. It shifts all of life when we recognize that we have a God of majestic holiness and unearthly power. He gives to his beloved sleep. Those who don't know God can stay up all night and fret, accomplishing nothing. The Christian has the faith that God is aware. He never slumbers nor sleep. And I will tell you this, you should go to sleep. It's a simple application. But it happens that I get emails at 2 a.m. in the morning. I want to tell those people, go to bed. I'm in bed. You're waking me up. No, I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? We, we worry, we, as David prayed this morning, we fear, we fret. And we should pause every so often and analyze even how our daily life is being carried out and whether or not we're doing things out of order, out of priority, things that are, we, the, the simple things have gone by the wayside because we have, we have not been trusting the Lord as we should. There's test two. Do we eat? Do we do the simple things? Do we really believe that what Paul has stated, given to him by God, that there will be all saved except for the ship? And will we eat, be encouraged, take some strength, and prepare for whatever he has next? That's what they did. Final test, test number three, 39 through 44, and then we see the resolution here. The day breaks. They don't know where they are. Uh, this 
there is a bay on the west side of the island of Malta, and it's now termed as Paul's Bay. They're not sure if that's where they landed or not, but there is a beach somewhere on the island of Malta that at some point this ship ran aground on. And you see them making plans. Verse 40, they cut the four anchors that are slowing the boat down. Uh, They loosen the ropes that tie the rudders. They would have lifted the rudders to keep them from breaking off. They would have tied them or either lifted them or tied them in place so that there could not be any steering and the wind takes them. But they prepare by untying the rudders. They hoist a sail. This is the first time we've seen this in 14 days where they, they, they actually are going to use this wind. This would have been a sail on the front side of the ship. And they point their way toward the beach and let it go, if you will. And as they're making for the shore, still storm-tossed, still in difficult times, they strike a reef. Now that's an understatement. Because you go from boats screaming along, rushing toward the beach, to boats stopped, not rushing any longer. The lurching of this ship, the movement of people, and what little cargo there may have been left. And the backside of the ship is now being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan, let's kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, and that's not centurions, that's Julius, who we met at the beginning of Acts 27, of the Augustan cohort, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And then we would love to know more, but Luke ends us inspired by the Holy Spirit with the simple sentence of, and so it was that they were all brought safely to land. (laughs) And they lived happily ever after. Really? Come on. (laughs) Let's look at Julius for a moment and be reminded of this man. We don't know whether or not this man is a man of faith. That is, whether or not he is saved and believes in the saving grace of Jesus Christ to cover all of his sin. We don't know that. We know he has enough faith being granted to him by God, of which all faith is, to believe that what Paul has said is true. He wishes to save Paul and he keeps them from carrying out their plan. And I would love to know what that looked like as well, but we don't have that. The faith of Julius is bolstered by the unwavering faith of Paul. Notice here, it's Paul's presence. Paul's physical presence on this ship and his relationship with Julius that assures deliverance to the other prisoners, however other, how many other there might be, we don't know. Paul is a messenger of the grace of God to others, but it is God that is the lead actor in this narrative of history. He is the one who is the ultimate deliverer. I think it's helpful for us to even recognize that as people of faith, there is a great need for people of faith in the lives of unbelievers in times of dire crisis. This is why we often pray for our nation in the time of pastoral confession and petition for some of the more pressing issues in our country, whether that is wildfires in California, whether that is covid 
whether that is hurricanes, whether that is tornadoes, that the people of faith in lives of unbelievers would be an encouragement and help to them. There are increasingly times of opportunity to share the gospel to help just humanity continue forward in times of difficulty, whether it's COVID, whether it's divorces, whether it's job loss, whether it's cancer, whether it's injury, that next door neighbor, that coworker, doesn't, not knowing God, not knowing Christ, believing there might be a God, having no faith to or hope that there is eternal life, and you in the next door cubicle, you across the street, being with them in the time of crisis, assisting them through it. That's what Paul is doing here. He's a messenger of God's grace. We don't, we don't read the end of this to say, oh, and Julius became a Christian and was baptized in the church. We, we don't have that. Who knows? God does. We act faithfully. Notice even that we, we, the people on this ship, the unbelieving sailors, the unbelieving soldiers, maybe Julius, maybe unbelieving prisoners, their lives are saved due to the presence of Paul. God even does good to the wicked for the sake of the faithful. Genesis 39, verse 5, he blessed the house of Potiphar for Joseph's sake. You know, if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ, you've never been, maybe you're considering it for the first time. Maybe you do know about Jesus Christ, but you have no need for him or desire for him. Then I would encourage you, if there's one bit of application here, do the wise thing and attach yourself to Christians. God deals with them in kindness, and it will overflow to you. Also realize that it overflows only on this side of heaven. It doesn't carry you past death. And cry out to God in saving faith. Put your trust in Christ alone to save you. This isn't a sidebar at all, but I want you to see in this section here, verse 42 and 43 specifically, the response of, of sailors and soldiers to authority. Uh, somehow it seems to be that Julius has stood up and made his voice known and Everyone does what he says. In times of great difficulty, in times of testing of our faith, we shouldn't look away from authority or rebel against authority, but move toward it and submit to it. God sets up kings and brings them down. He's the authority over all authorities and he puts authorities into our lives to remind us that we are to submit because we once rebelled. Think about it this way. Submission to authorities is the, way, is the thing we hate the most but is quite possibly the clearest public act of repentance from our innate rebellion passed down in birth from our father Adam. You ever thought about that? We hate authority. We hate when mom and dad tell us what to do. Children, you know you do because we did too when we were children as adults now. We don't like when our boss tells us to do something. We don't like when our clients tells us to do something we don't like. We don't like when the government makes a decision we don't care for. We don't like authority. It's part of who we are. And yet, consider the fact that 
quite possibly the clearest public act of repentance, the way you might most clearly live out your Christian walk in a way that is a clear witness of Jesus Christ in you is in your submission to authorities. Now, Christ is our example here. This is what he did. What did Christ do when he was here? Well, I will tell you the one thing he did that irked everybody the most, whether a disciple or a Pharisee or Rome, and that is he submitted to authority and nobody wanted him to do that or they wanted him to submit to the wrong authority. He sometimes submitted to the authority of Rome. They didn't want that. Sometimes he always submitted to the authority of his father. The Pharisees wanted him to submit to them over and above his heavenly father and he wouldn't. Disciples wanted him to overthrow Rome and establish a new kingdom, but he didn't do it the way they wanted. They wanted fireworks and and howitzers. Christ did it with a cross, death, and resurrection from the dead. God establishes authorities in our lives. And it's by the submission to the authority of Julius here that God allows these people to be saved. Consider this. Now as we close this morning... I want us to turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. You know this passage. You can quote it from, by heart, but turn there if you will. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Let's close with this question, which is, what is faith? The title of the sermon is A Storm-Tested Faith. What is faith? You know the passage, Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. What do we want? We want faith is the assurance of things clearly seen. That's not what it says. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then it goes on in the book of Hebrews to describe individual after individual after individual who had that faith. They were assured of things hoped for, They had the conviction of things not seen. Brothers and sisters, we sit in a pew, September 20th, 2020, with this in our hands. We got more sight than any other person has ever had. We can open our Bibles. We can read. We have 2,000 plus years of history, of of redemptive history, post-Christ, of the clear Truth of God doing what he says he's going to do. We have plenty of evidence to have faith. To have faith in God. To have faith in the triune God. That what God says will come to pass. To have the faith in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Consider even when we have faith in God, the triune God, what that helps us with. In times of difficulty, when our faith is tested, it's this. We have the presence of God, the Father, assuring control over all things. We have the presence of Christ, assuring us of our deliverance from sin and death, from the wrath of God. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit, promising us, assuring us in comfort. All of these things in times of trouble. This is what faith is for tomorrow. This is what faith looks like for whatever the difficulty God has allowed into your life. 
is the recognition that you know God. And more importantly, he knows you through his son, Jesus Christ, that he's going to work all things together for his good, for your good and his glory. And in his triune nature, he's controlling all things. He's delivered you from that which you could not deliver yourself. He promises eternal life. He's going to get you there. And he's given you the presence of the Holy Spirit within you to comfort you. You've got plenty in his word, even this morning through this text. That should be that which we can fall upon even this week as needed, as our faith might be tested, knowing that he is holding us, he is caring for us, he is working all things for his glory. Let's pray. Father, you are good and gracious and kind. We doubt, we worry, we fret. Father, we do not appreciate the storms that you bring into our lives. We don't care for them. We certainly don't delight in them. We don't look forward to being in them tomorrow. Father, even now we pause and we ask that you would forgive us. It is right and proper to recognize your hand in our lives and even a hand that may be bringing difficulty, but we must recognize, Father, and we often fail to do, that that hand is from a good, a perfectly good and loving Heavenly Father who is caring for us as his children and the way he knows best. Father, strengthen our faith that you are all wise. Strengthen our faith to trust that you are all knowing, that you are perfect, that you cannot make a mistake, that there will be nothing that takes place today that is outside of your knowledge. There is nothing, not one thing that can spin out of control outside of your control. Father, remind us even as we look into our lives and think and and are tempted to think everything is out of control to be reminded that there is one who is controlling all things. If you, our great God, can calm storm-infested waters, not by just calming the waters, but stopping wind, creating wind. Who are we to, to doubt that you cannot do the same in our own lives? Father, as difficult as it may be, we would simply ask in faith this afternoon that you would grant us the grace to trust you in our times of difficulty, that those difficulty those difficulties, that time of difficulty would not lift until we learn the lesson you have for us. Father, we want to be more like Jesus Christ. We want to be more like 
your perfect son. You have adopted us into your family. We are your children. And we want to honor you and glorify you in the way we live our lives, the way we think about our lives. And we pray that you would help us. We are weak and need, you, and, and need your strength. Lord, we thank you for the time we've had to sing this morning, hear from your word, pray together, here in a few moments, fellowship with one another. These simple means of grace, we trust that they will be used to strengthen us for this week. In Christ's name we pray, amen.